0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, glory to you, Lord Christ. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its flavor, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does a person light a lamp and put it under a basket, but puts it on a stand to give light to the entire house. In the same way, so let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that all Holy Scripture is written for our learning, and so we pray now by your Spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this your Holy Word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. you have so much more potential than you realize. You have so much more potential to live the life that God is calling you to live than you realize. You have so much more potential than than you believe is capable within you to live the life of holiness God has called you to. I can say this with assurance because of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, in the 1980s, there was a series of testing done in several elementary schools in the United States. A a team came in to these elementary schools and handed out these examinations that were meant to assess who the gifted students were. So because of the exam, they could assess them and say, okay, these kids have real potential. And so they distributed the tests and they didn't tell the parents the results of the test and they didn't tell the students the results of the test. They only told the teachers the results of the tests. Who was the gifted? Who were the gifted? And so a year later they came back and they assessed all the students who had been marked as gifted. And you know what they saw? Was all these students had risen up and done much better. They were near the top of their classes. There'd been a real success metric between those assigned as gifted and those who had demonstrated greater competency in the past year. But you know what's interesting about the test is the whole thing was a sham and a hoax. It was in fact just an experiment led by some doctoral students from a university doing their educational doctorates. The test was given and then the tests were thrown away. No one graded them. They randomly picked among the children the ones they would say these are the gifted ones. They told the teachers that but it was a total sham, it was was made up. So how is it that those students who were assigned as gifted randomly actually rose to the top of the class? Because the teachers expected more of them. Over that year, each one of those teachers, believing the test to be real, suddenly started expecting more of the gifted students, pouring more time in. You can do more than you think. I'm gonna push you further and harder. They could never run such a test anymore, thanks be to Jesus. But the teachers saw potential, and that potential was realized. And that was a big sham. But here's the truth. When we unpack the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, here's what we see. Instead of it being a sham, it's a promise. Jesus is saying, I am gonna demonstrate just how much potential you have to live for God because of what I'm gonna tell you in this message you see it's fascinating Jesus is really in many ways replaying Mount Sinai we're told in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5 if you're with me that Jesus goes up onto the mountain it's very clear biblical language he takes the crowd up the mountain and he speaks for three chapters and what he's telling them is an ethic how to live So it sounds like he's doing Mount Sinai all over again, but this time it's not the voice of God coming from heaven. Jesus himself is on the mountain. The voice of God is coming directly from him. And he's giving them, yes, a law. He's giving them a series of ethics and ways to live in this world. He's saying, this is how you live God's way in God's world. But here's what's different between the first moment at Sinai and this new Sinai moment in the Sermon on the Mount. It's all going to hinge on verse 17. Something radically changes. See, verse 17, if you're there with me in Matthew chapter 5, I would argue is the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. If you understand what verse 17 means, when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, if we understand what it means that Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets, suddenly this new Sinai giving of the law moves from being prescription, go and do these things, to promise, this is what I promise is gonna happen in your life. It moves from a fear-based, well, you better go do these things, into a place of absolute freedom. I am now enabled to live this way. What do I mean? Well, we got to unpack what that one verse, verse 17, means. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets? Now, when I teach on this, and I've taught it a number of times in schools, I've taught it in the fellowship hall, I've taught it in here, I always use the same three alliterative points. Different sermon content, but the same alliterative points, because I want you to remember these three words. When you think, okay, what is Jesus' relationship with the law? I want you to remember these three things. Mnemonic devices like alliteration aren't just to help me to memorize. It's also for you to remember, okay? So when someone says to you, okay, what is the relationship between Jesus and the law? His fulfillment means that he interprets the law perfectly perfectly. The final authorized interpretation. What does the law of God mean? Here's God himself interpreting God's law. Interpretation. That's what it means to fulfill. But it also means he incarnates the law. He enfleshes the law. He lives the law perfectly. Not only perfectly interpreting it, but perfectly living it. Interprets, incarnates, but even more, fulfilling the law has a third eye that we are invited therefore to now live the law in freedom. Not under the burden, not under this sense of obligation as if you know everything hinges on my ability to handle this. No, suddenly because he has fulfilled it both in his prime interpretation, his perfect incarnation, I am now freed to begin living, invited in to this new life. You have more potential I have more potential. The world who comes under Christ has more potential to live this than we could even dream. So first, Jesus fulfills the law. It means that he interprets it. You know, it's interesting, Jesus handles the law of God unlike any rabbi. He talks like no other rabbi. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter seven, verse 24, 25, no, chapter seven, verse 28, 29, he says, the crowd, Matthew says, that when he finished saying these things, the crowd was astonished because he spoke to them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. The authority they're talking about is this, that Jesus will speak about the law of God, the Torah and the prophets in a way that no other, pro, no, no other rabbi would. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, What? Jesus, no rabbi is allowed to do that. You just say, you've heard it said, end of story. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I mean, it's the most audacious thing a person could say unless the writer to Hebrews is right in Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two saying, long ago in many times in many places, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. God himself enters into the world to interpret his own law. And here's what happens when Jesus interprets the law. Are you ready for it? It gets harder, it gets harder. You know those people, you know those people out there, there's some of you maybe in the room today, you won't be like this anymore after today's sermon I trust, but who will say like I'm a New Testament Christian As if, you know, there's this sort of difference between those Old Testament Christians and then the New Testament Christians. Like, you know, the Old Testament's this like heavy burden of law and just so much burden. But I'm all into Jesus in the New Testament. Like I'm I'm a New Testament Christian. I want to say, there's no such thing. Like it's the same God who's revealing the same thing through both Testaments. Because the truth is when people say, oh, I think the New Testament's a lot, you know, it's, it's not as heavy as the Old Testament. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you listened to Jesus? This is the guy who says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say, don't be angry with your brother. Whoa, Jesus, that is way too much. This is the guy that says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't lust. Are you serious? This is the guy who says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, you know, proportional retaliation. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Suddenly, this way of living, following the way of Jesus, his interpretation, is a lot harder. It's like the little girl and her brother who are fighting over the last cookie in the cookie jar. And they're just fighting and they're yelling and screaming at each other over the last cookie. And the mom walks into the kitchen and says, enough. I just want to ask you one question. What would Jesus do if there's only one cookie? And the little girl looks at her brother and says, that's right, you be Jesus. Much harder and higher is the call than what Moses received on that first Sinai. When Jesus climbs up the mountain, what he places before us is greater. I mean, it's really summed up, you could say in chapter five, verse 48, be perfect like your heavenly father's perfect. This is what Jesus is calling us to. But he fulfills the law, not just in interpreting it perfectly, but in incarnating it perfectly. Incarnation, you know, we say this in the creed every week. By the way, last Sunday, I skipped the creed at the 715 service. And it's always an interesting thing whenever I do something like that liturgically, everyone sort of wonders, I, you know, is there some special feast day that meant that Father Paul needed to skip the creed? Or is there something in the readings? Or is there some rubric in the prayer book that says, the bottom line is I skipped the creed because I didn't have enough coffee that morning and I wasn't paying attention. So that's all it was. But I skipped the creed. But in the creed, every Sunday we say, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate. Incarnate, incarnate, in flesh. That he took on flesh. In the words of John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or Eugene Peterson's translation of the message, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That Jesus has incarnated what it means to live the holy life before God. He comes and shows us how. And what's interesting about his incarnation is that he's modeling for us what holiness looks like, but he's also the means for our holiness, right? He's the model for our holiness. Here's what holiness looks like, but he's also the means. Here's how holiness is gonna happen in you. The model, right? He lives the perfect life. He's the only human being who's ever truly, walked his talk fully. He's lived a perfect life before God. As Hebrews chapter four fifteen says, we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. He lived the perfect life. He modeled it for us. We look at his life and it's so attractive and so revolutionary and so amazing and seemingly so impossible. You know, yesterday we put to rest... Ken and Tony Brown's father George in a funeral service in the chapel and during the service just before the sermon uh, Aaron got up and sang a solo and it was this beautiful piece of music and it was it was the words of Saint Francis's prayer and it was so stunning and so perfect that everyone in the room didn't quite know what to do afterwards. It was just big and beautiful. I mean, do we clap? Do we get on our knees and pray? What do we do? And of course, I'm thinking, the whole congregation's thinking, this was awesome. I'm thinking, this is awful. I have to get up and preach after this. Put that after the sermon, for goodness sake. How do I follow that? But it was amazing. I came home, and I heard my daughter on the piano plucking out notes, and I said, thinking that sounds familiar. I said, what what are you playing? And she said, oh, I'm Learning that piece that Aaron sang. My my daughter, who is going off to study voice in college, beholds that kind of beauty and that kind of power and that kind of wonder in a song and says, I want to live that too. I want to do that too. And that's what Jesus' life does for us. He models a life we say, Lord, could I be so loving? Could I be so forgiving? Can I be so sacrificial? Can I be so at peace in the midst of conflict? Can I learn how to sleep in the midst of a sea storm? We look at His life and we say, "This is the model." But that's not just what the incarnation is as a model. It's more than a model. It's the means, the means by which we can live into this call to a holy, good life before God. You see. We can't do this. And we know we can't do it. As amazing as the model is, we will always fall short. But something amazing happens in that Jesus has fulfilled the law because what it means, He's fulfilled the requirements of the law, not just for himself, but for everyone. He's fulfilled the requirements of the law that formerly stood on you and me. He's fulfilled it. It's done. It's finished. You know, Romans 8 begins with these words, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of us need to write that in the front of our Bibles and just look at that every day. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse three, for God did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He put sin to death in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Now, what does that whole mouthful mean? It means this, in the words of Tim Keller, Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law that was over your head and over mine. It is done. It is complete. It's finished. The problem is the devil wants to rob us of that peace. The devil wants to rub our face in past sins and tell us, oh no, I don't think it really worked for you. This is why the devil is called the accuser in scripture. He's constantly being in accusations against you and I. The truth, friends, is our former sins, our past sins should humble us, but they should not hinder us because what has been forgiven has been forgiven. What was required of us has already been fulfilled in him. We stand fulfilled, completed before God. I love how Martin Luther, so in his typical Martin Luther bombastic way says this. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, I shall be also. As John chapter eight, verse 36 says, if the Son sets you free, you're free. Indeed. This is what it means that Jesus fulfills the law. He interprets it perfectly. He incarnates it perfectly. Not just a model, but the means by which we are set free from the obligation. Do you hear it? You are set free from the obligations of the law. You want to say, that's the end of the sermon, right? Let's just go out and do whatever we want. No, you miss the third eye. And then it would all be for naught. The third eye is this. Fulfilling the law is about Jesus, not only interpreting it perfectly and incarnating it perfectly, but then inviting us into that life, inviting us now in freedom to live into that law. You know, this is always the order of things in scripture. God always comes to save us first And then he calls us to new life. He always comes and shows grace first and then says, now grow in me. He always brings us mercy and then says, now here's your mandate to live. Grace must come first. You see this in the first Sinai, the first giving of the law. You know, we often get, as I've said before, we often get the numbering of the Ten Commandments wrong. It's just what's happened, you know, we've... Create all this artwork, you know, some of you have it in your homes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on the wall, right? It's good. I'm not getting down on that. I'm just saying you kind of need to like get a marker out and fix the numbering. Ask your Jewish friends what the first commandment is. Here's where we get tripped up. It's not actually commandments we should call them. They're called the, the ten words, the decalogue, the ten logos. What's the first word that God gives to Israel on Sinai? It's not Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the first word at Sinai is Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Second word, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you hear the order of salvation? God's grace comes first. I have already saved you, Israel. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, because that's who I am. I come in grace, and then I say, now it's time to live. Jesus, the great fisherman, knows you've got to get the fish in the boat before you clean it. This is what God is doing in Christ Jesus. He is taking us from this place of sin and bringing us to life. I mean, I think Charles Wesley gets the order of it right. I think he really gets the order of salvation right. Grace comes first, then new life. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. My eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon filled with lights, My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee my chains fell off my heart was free salvation I rose went forth and followed Thee. new life living under the law do you hear it this is why Jesus says in John 8 to the woman caught in adultery nor do I condemn you go and sin no more You hear that order? Condemnation is not there. There's no condemnation. But now what? Go and sin no more. Live into this new life in freedom. C.S. Lewis, you got Luther and Lewis this morning. My goodness. Getting your money's worth. (laughs) Lewis says this, that we learn on the one hand we learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other hand that we need on despair in our worst moments, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Free from fear, free, free from the guilt or the worry of being considered a failure, being rejected. You will fall down. God knows you'll fall down. And so he's come in the person of his son and fulfilled the obligation of the law. But then invites you to live it now in freedom. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and you for the whole world. You have so much more potential than you realize. You have so much more potential to live a holy life before God than you realize. You have so much more potential to live the life God is calling you to live for his purposes than you realize, and I can say that with confidence because of the Sermon on the Mount. Because that one critical verse that changes everything. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfilling them by perfectly interpreting them. Fulfilling them by perfectly incarnating them. Fulfilling them by perfectly inviting us to a new life of freedom before God. I close with this that when I was in my first year of my music program in college, eons ago, I remember going in for an audition for the little select choir. There was this little performing group. It was like there was a jazz portion of it, and then there was some other performance. And it was, it was the elite group. This is what you wanted to get into. There was a little stipend that went along with this if you were in it. It was kind of like being a TA. It was a big deal, and I was so excited, and I thought, this is great. And I walked into the audition, and I thought I'd be kind of a shoe in because, yes, I was that arrogant. But I was surprised as the music professor just kept pushing me like I was a tenor and so he's singing bits with me and then he'd be like well let's go higher and he'd go up you know a couple more tones and and we get higher and higher and my voice started cracking I mean I'm thinking what is he doing here like I'm not a counter tenor I'm a tenor this is getting crazy I'm I'm sounding terrible and he could see the consternation on my face like what is going on here and he finally stopped and he took his hands off the piano his name was Mark Halfso. I'll never forget him. Great choir director. And he said, Mark said to me, he said, um, Paul, you look worried. He said, you know you're in already, right? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're a scholarship student. That's part of the terms of the scholarship. You have to sing in this group. I said, oh. And I said, then what's this all about? He said, I'm just using your audition time to have 15 minutes with you to see how far I can push your voice. I'm here to push you in the time that you're in college as far as you can go. I'm gonna push you to your upper limits and you're gonna be surprised at the range you have. And all of a sudden I thought, I'm in, I'm free. I'm free to fail. And that's the kingdom of God. That's what it means that Jesus has fulfilled the law. You are not the sum total of your successes and you're not the sum total of your failures. You will never earn your place in the kingdom. You will never achieve a place of holiness. But instead you will begin living into it in freedom when you realize that Jesus has already paid the cost, has paid the price and fulfilled it all. We live into this future. Put it this way. Your holy living, your life before God, the way you're called to live your life, your holy living is not your audition. Your holy living is the role you've already been cast in. So live into it. Play it before your Father in heaven. And play it boldly. It's not how you get in. Your holy living is your inheritance. Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. That's where we find our potential. That's what it means that Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.